Welcome to the Bloomberg PL Podcast. I'm Pim Fox, along with my co-host, Lisa Abramowitz. Each day, we bring you the most important, noteworthy, and useful interviews for you and your money, whether you're at the grocery store or the trading floor. Find the Bloomberg PL Podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, and at Bloomberg.com. Logic shares right now are up more than 8%. They reported earnings after the bell uh, yesterday that beat analysts' estimates. And uh, we have a uh, special guest with us, Steve McMillan, chairman, president, and CEO of Hologic, uh, to explain a little bit more about uh, what happened in, in the past quarter and, and why it was uh, so successful. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, Lisa. Thanks for having us. So um, so what happened? What sort of drove the uh, better-than-expected earnings? Really, I think it was broad-based growth. We have three key businesses in the company. We have the mammography business, where we've become the world leader, especially behind our genius 3D technology. We also have a very strong molecular diagnostics business that has been the world leader in both cervical cancer testing as well as reproductive health. So all kinds of sexually transmitted infections. That business is performing very, very well. And then we have a gyne-surgical division, which is really for endometrial ablation as well as fibroid removal uh, through the uterus. And that business is also performing way above expectations. It had its seventh straight quarter of double-digit growth. So it's really broad-based growth. And as you know, in a very skittish healthcare and, and investor environment right now, we always kind of want to be a safe port in the storm. And, and we showed we came through. So I'm very proud of our team. Well, I do want to raise one thing. I mean, I, I would imagine that Hologic is sort of at the forefront of uh, the controversy over mammograms and how effective they are. And, you know, there's some uh, talk about removing the recommendation that women get mammograms, which I'm sure is leading into insurance and whether or not they'll uncover it. Uh, how much is that affecting Hologic and, and the business going forward? We, we really see it as a great opportunity in that so many of the shortfalls and shortcomings of traditional mam- mammography or mammograms has really been the old technology. And because we've brought our 3D technology to the marketplace just in the last few years, it's really addressing all of the key issues historically. So if you think about it, what are the key issues historically? One is, you know, false positives. Uh, Our 3D technology dramatically reduces the amount of false positives. So what does that mean in real terms? You know, 15% fewer false positives means women are not having to go back and have biopsies that aren't needed. So you can see things so much better. The other part is that we're detecting early stage cancers about 15 months earlier and or depending on how you look at the data, we're getting about 40% more uh, positives in terms of effectively diagnosing the breast cancer. So what's happening is a lot of the research and the guidelines are based on old mammograms Everything that we've brought with 3D is is effectively addressing those shortcomings. But have fewer women been, been getting mammograms, and is that affecting your business? Not really. We're seeing, you know, actually part of the strength of our business over the last couple of years has been the adoption of our 3D technology. So even though there's pressures on healthcare costs, there are some controversies. You know, the U.S. PSTF which is the U.S. uh, Preventive Services Services Task Force, Force, and the American Cancer Society, had come out a year ago suggesting that women should wait until they're 50 for their first mammogram. I think everybody on this planet has either a friend or someone in their family who, if they waited until 50, would be dead, quite frankly. My own mother was diagnosed almost 20 years ago. 
So to wait until you're 50 is just completely nonsensical. And so I think what we've actually seen is, despite the USPSTF guidelines, the American College of Radiology, and it's the radiologists who are close to this, are absolutely going against that. And they know that really starting at 40, and frankly, if you've had a history of breast cancer, you should start sooner. You know, we all know, you know, there are women in their 20s and 30s diagnosed. So the whole key in breast cancer, it's, it's an eminently deal, you know, it's a de- disease you can totally deal with if you catch it early. And that's what 3D mammograms are helping to do. So we actually feel we're on the right side of it and we're reducing cost, we're improving the patient outcomes, and it, it's good for everybody in the system, the huh. patient, the payer, the, the radiologist, and, and frankly, our company. You mentioned, Steve, you're reducing the cost. What specifically? Well, the big cost in breast cancer is when you start to deal with it later. If you get somebody who's stage three or stage four, mm-hmm. you're dealing with full-blown, you know, let's face it, mastectomies, radiation, chemo, all of that. When you can catch breast cancer in its very early stages, you can have much more, le- you know, basically a less intervention is needed. And so if you can get it early when it's small and it hasn't started to metastasize, you deal with it. And that's where the big win is, both in terms of survival rates, but it's also dramatically less in cost. So that's why a win-win, yeah. something like Cigna, just in the last couple of months, is now covering 3D mammograms. And we think that's clearly the trend that's occurring because they're realizing it's better for the patients. It's also, frankly, better for their cost Ten structure. seconds. Got to be quick. Does the election outcome impact you guys? Not really. I'm I think, worried. you know, again, we Even think Even if Donald Trump says he wants a change in terms of Obamacare? At the end of the day, we are reducing healthcare costs and we're improving patient outcomes. We think it puts us in a good place. Steve McMillan, he's chairman, president, and CEO of Hologic. Uh, Marlboro Mass is where they're based in our New York studio on this Thursday. This is Bloomberg. Well, we want to talk a little bit about Wells Fargo today because it's back in the news. The SEC investigating sales practices at the company and our Bloomberg exclusive, how the stars at the company uh, climbed as abuses flourished beneath them. Let's talk uh, about it all. With us is Laura Keller, financial reporter at Bloomberg News. She's here with Elliot Stein, senior litigation analyst at Bloomberg Intelligence. First off, Laura, let me start with you. Um, Talk to me about what was going on at the company. We know about these fake accounts, these fraudulent accounts. A lot of people lost their jobs as a result. But what, some of the senior people, they did just fine. Right, exactly. And this is a story um, we hope, and I think it accomplished this, um, you know, that was looking at accountability. So it really did focus more on these senior managers and senior levels of people rather than what we already know the company has, you know, fired these 5,300 very low level workers. Um, so what we essentially chronicled here was really just this generation of executives um, who rose through the ranks. Even while all of these practices were going on, um, these were very, very ambitious people. A lot of them came out of California, some of them specifically out of Southern California, um, where we already know from C- uh, the for- C- former CEO, excuse me, John Stump, um, where a lot of these problems were happening. Um, and then sort of chronicled the story of these um, Southern California and California stars fanning out across the country and therefore sort of bringing these sales practices that they had you know, come to know and and used um, throughout their career, you know, to these other places like Florida or like Texas. Well, hold on a second. And these star managers, are they immune at this point? I mean, the story seems to suggest that some of them could uh, get fired still. 
Yes. I mean, I want to be clear in the story, we do name um, many particular managers. We did um, speak to someone who um, we note in the story who told us that indeed there are some managers that the company executives have already identified to be fired. Um, But we don't, we're not able to say at this point whether those are the same people. So I just want to be clear on that. Well, I'm curious to how this all folds in. Elliot, let's bring you in, senior litigation analyst at Bloomberg Intelligence. And we're also talking with Laura Keller, financial reporter at Bloomberg News. So I saw the headline this morning uh, about the SEC investigating uh, the sales practice at Wells Fargo. And I thought, uh uh-oh, okay, another chapter. What does this mean? How does it kind of maybe play into some of what Laura was talking about? Right. Well, it just, uh, it shows that this continues to be an evolving and growing story that the bank is really trying to, you know, wrap its hands and head around. And they haven't Um, quite yet, it feels like. Right, right. Um, You know, I think they've been criticized, well... It's interesting because the SEC investigation, first of all, it's not a not really a surprise. No, um, I mean, how could they not? That and not only that, right? How could they not? After the Department of Justice is investigating them, uh, states are investigating them, including California. But three U.S. senators sent the SEC a letter saying you should investigate Wells Fargo, <laughs> um, and you know the the focus will probably be on whether. Uh, the bank should have disclosed in their filings that they were being investigated for these things by the CFPB and the OCC. Nothing really was disclosed until the the fine, the $185 million fine in September, even though these things have been going on for years, for years including lawsuits um, and investigations uh, by the city of Los Angeles. Well, I, I want to talk about that uh, as far as the expense of the litigation. You noted that they increased their litigation reserves by about $700 million uh, since the first quarter. Um, is this is this enough? Um, well, right. So, so today in their filing, they disclosed that their reasonably possible litigation costs beyond reserves are $1.7 billion as of September 30th. Um, the same number at the end of June 30, uh, for June 30 was 1 billion. So like you say, they increased it by $700 million. Um, it's unclear whether it'll be enough. What's interesting is, um, that it's potentially not the, the fake account scandal may not be even their biggest, um, litigation cost. Uh, if they'd already, we knew they'd already reserved a billion dollars. They're still being investigated by the justice department's RMBS task force, which has been in the news because of the anticipated Deutsche Bank settlement and settlements with other European banks. Wells Fargo is one of one of one of the few U.S. banks that still has to settle with that task force. Well, well and, go ahead. No, I was wondering though, Laura, like in your story, so you th- you know you profile, you know, you talk about one individual, Kim Young, um, you know who, you know who who was, I guess, not senior senior, or was she senior? Um, pretty senior. Yeah. I mean, most of the people that we talk to, what they call regional presidents or even beyond that, I mean, within the retail bank, they're very senior people, um, just not as senior as you would think, you know, C-level suite for the whole company. Like, I wonder how much of this investigation, whether the SEC and others, will eventually come back to some of those senior people who were rising in the ranks as all of this was going on. We know John Stump certainly is gone and has taken a fall because of this. But you wonder how much will trickle down coming off the financial crisis. It felt like so many financial executives were not prosecuted at all. So I'm just curious if it'll if it'll play out here. Well, yeah, and I think that's a really interesting question. I don't think we know the answer to that yet yeah. and what authorities themselves will focus on. But I think it's very interesting in the story that, you know, we note that, the you know, when you go back to these execs um, the that have identified people already for firings, we, we, you know, in our story talk about how, well, actually they don't want to fire them yet. They're delaying this because they actually want to use those people to aid the investigation. They like that inquiry to keep going. So, so, 
you know, whether that means they, you know, eventually take the full brunt of this, I, you know, I don't know. We'll have to see what the investigation finds. Yeah, you know, well, I'm looking at Wells Fargo shares right now. Uh, year to date, they're down about 13 uh, percent. You just have to wonder, given all of this uncertainty, given potential turnover in the upper ranks of management that are below the C-level suite, uh, Laura, like you're talking about, you have to wonder, you know, what what are going to be the implications? I mean, when you talk to investors, what, what do they say? Yeah, I mean, investors, it's funny, originally didn't really worry about this very much because it was only $185 million. But if I kind of pick up on where you're going, Lisa, if this was so systemic to the point, I mean, you know, our story chronicles a lot of things here. You know, let's just say we, we found, you know, the bank has around 200 very senior managers. Let's just say, you know, wild guess, and this is really based on just, you know, hypotheticals. What if 50% of those people really had some hand in this? Do you fire every single person? How do you well, actually yes. hold on a second. Wait, wait, wait. But, but hold on a second, Elliot. I want just real quick in 20 seconds. I mean, what is sort of the level of scrutiny that rises to legal uh, accountability here? Well, actually, just going back to the the share, the share losses, um, that actually goes to the SEC investigation because the issue there is whether it was material to the company. Right. You know, two million accounts sounds material. Um, but $185 million may not have sounded material to Wells Fargo. So that's sort of going to be the issue that plays out there, which is when an interesting one for down, right? that? Exactly. Well, thank you so much. Great conversation. Laura Keller uh, with a fantastic story on the Bloomberg, as well as uh, Elliot Stein, Senior Litigation Analyst for Bloomberg Intelligence. Thank you so much for being with us. This will be something that probably will keep our attention for quite uh, a few months to come. So we'll keep an eye on it. Uh, Wells Fargo shares uh, slightly up, but overall this year, uh, they've been they've been down quite a bit. This is Bloomberg. Right now, though, we want to go back to uh, some news we got out of the UK this morning. Uh, a panel of London judges deciding that the UK must hold a vote in Parliament before starting the two-year countdown to Brexit. Let's talk about uh, what the implications of that decision, that legal decision, uh, what it all means. Kit uh, Shalala, legal reporter at Bloomberg News, uh, was at the UK Supreme Court in London earlier today and joins us uh, from London uh, at this hour. Uh, Kit, nice to have you here with uh, Lisa and myself. So what does this mean? Uh, hi, Carol. Uh, what does it mean? Um, well, the, the most important thing to remember is that this was round one of, of a legal fight. Um, uh, the government has lost today, but uh, it will be very quickly uh, appealed to the Supreme Court, um, who will ultimately have the final say on this case. Okay, so, um, but the markets are responding. So it seems to indicate, I mean, there is some significance here in that it's not going to be an easy uh, resolution, right? I mean, even uh, the Supreme Court, how long, that will take a while, right? Well, what they've done is because because it's such an important question, they fast-tracked it. So the Supreme Court will hear the case quickly, um, uh, maybe as soon as December, and uh, will probably make a decision by January. Um I guess the significance is that if the Supreme Court agrees with the decision today and there has to be a vote in Parliament, that makes it difficult for Theresa May to do a fast, uh, hard Brexit, which is what she wanted to do. It means they'll have to consult Parliament, there'll have to be a vote. It's going to take some time, it's going to be difficult, and it's certainly going to, going to affect the timetable. Well, Kit, and that's what I wanted to know. What were the implications of having now the Parliament, if it stays, that they have to vote? You mentioned speed, that it's going to slow down the process uh, if Theresa May was trying to go much more quickly with this, uh, and that they've got to potentially consult Parliament. What does that mean, though, that in terms of what a Brexit might ultimately look like? 
I think most people accept that Parliament isn't going to block Article 50 being triggered. It's not going to block a Brexit. But Parliament wants to have a say in how any deal will look. And that makes it difficult for Theresa May. She has to go to negotiate with other European nations about the terms of Britain's exit. And she has to go and do that with a bunch of conditions from British lawmakers. That makes her job a bit harder. Well, you know, I, I, I've got to, I'm, I'm a little confused. Can you help me out here? Uh, the British, <laughs> on a lot of levels, but, you know, one in particular, uh, the British pound, you know, it gained on the news. It gained quite a bit uh, relative to recent history. Um, I'm wondering whether this is a realistic kind of collective FX cheering or whether people are kind of uh, getting a little bit lost uh, in the weeds here because realistically this just sort of creates more uncertainty which could potentially be negative for the economy right am I missing I something here no I mean it's a fair point <laughs> it is it is confusing I think I think Thank a lot you. of people are confused um, even, you know, especially even legal reporters are confused by it um, it I think traders are looking for any any sort of move that is going to affect the Brexit timetable, and they're looking to trade off any information. So in the middle of the trial, uh, the government's lawyers made a what I thought was quite an obvious statement that there would have to be a vote in Parliament eventually on whatever deal was reached. And you know that news sent the pound up half a percent. That's ridiculous. Um, of course they would have to vote on it. So, 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 so people are looking for any sort of news, any indication of how long this is going to take, and it is worth remembering that this legal, you know, that a, a, a potential, although very unlikely, outcome of this process is that it, it makes Brexit impossible or too difficult or delays it for such a long period of time that things change. And maybe people are, are sort of trading on that remote possibility. All right. So what's the next step? Uh, the next step is that the government has said it's going to appeal to the Supreme Court in the UK, which is the highest court. Uh, that will happen very quickly and we'll have a rerun of all the arguments from both sides. The Supreme Court has a roughly 50-50 track record of allowing appeals uh, or dismissing them. So, you know, you could make an argument that the government has a, has a fighting chance of winning at the highest court, and then the Supreme Court will make their decision in January. Okay, so I'm, I'm looking up what the average hourly fee is for lawyers in Britain, and it sounds like, um, on average, it's about £100 an hour, which I guess is... is can be less than here um, based on where the pound is versus the dollar. But, I mean, who's incurring all of these legal fees? <laughs> um, yeah, I think the lawyers in this case are earning more than £100 an hour. <laughs> um, <laughs> I, would, I, would, I, would, I would think so. But this, is, this isn't going to be inexpensive, yeah? Yes, it, it is expensive to run these, these cases. Um, in, in, in this country, if you win your case, um, the other side pays your legal costs. So as of right now, the claimants have won and the government will have to pay for everything. Um, but but uh, isn't, it, isn't it the government versus the government here? No, the, the claimants are a, are a range of different people who have an interest in, in delaying or stopping Brexit. Like who? Um, uh, one of them is Gina Miller. She's, a, she's an, a, an investment worker who, who was sort of uh, voted to remain in the EU. There are various expat Brits living abroad. Um, it, they're a diverse bunch of people. Um, a few of the lawyers are acting pro bono, that they're doing it for free. And, you know, they've also raised funds using crowdfunding to pay for this because there's <laughs> obviously there's, a, there's popular support in the UK for the idea of there being a vote in Parliament about Brexit. That's amazing. Crowdfunded legal costs. Bloomberg Business Week did a story, though, about like the one, you know, kind of jobs that will actually benefit because of Brexit. And they talked, I think, <laughs> about the legal community in particular, uh, certainly in the short run. 
Uh, well, Wild. Kit Shalel, thank you so much for joining us. It's really a fascinating legal proceeding. Uh, Kit Shalel, legal reporter for Bloomberg in London, talking about what's going on with the Brexit vote and whether or not it can be a fast, quick, easy, clean Brexit. Sounds like not so much. We'll stick with that, though. This is Bloomberg. Um, I want to bring in uh, somebody who can talk to us a little bit about uh, what's going on with these smaller companies that perhaps people are looking over as they rush to uh, the stock markets. I want to thank you very much for coming in. Uh, John Campbell, Chief Investment Officer of Cornerstone Investment Partners. Uh, so what what are you looking at? I mean, you, you focus on the smaller, less less uh, less popular stocks. Which ones do you think are the best bets right now? Well, uh, our approach is to look at the overall market and try and find companies that have improving fundamentals. And we try to take the risk out of buying small cap stocks by buying companies that have free cash flow so they can cover their debts in the near term, cover their capex in the near time, have tangible assets. The small, small cap asset class is an excellent class. If, if you look back 90 years, the returns on small cap have uh, greatly outperformed other classes. For example, you can, versus large cap stocks, small cap stocks have done about 12% on average over that period, and large cap stocks have done closer to 10%. So a 2% advantage over 90 years is a dramatic difference. Uh, the problem is- You've got to have a strong stomach, though, for small you, caps. It you, can be really volatile. You, could, you have to have a strong stomach, and, and they're much more volatile than large cap stocks. That's exactly right. So if you want to get exposure to this class, and we think it's a good idea to do it because of the, the higher uh, historic returns, you have to do things to mitigate the risk so that you can make it something you can live with and you can stomach, as you say. So by doing things like looking for companies that are financially sound, we think we can take a little bit of that edge off, and well, also by diversifying. John, let me ask you, what does it mean, though? I, I was looking at the small cap uh, index, and we, we broke it down, too, earlier with uh, Dave Wilson, our Bloomberg Stocks columnist. Small caps are up roughly 2.6% this year. I look at S&P 500, the large caps, up about 2.8%, pretty much almost on par with one another. Mid caps have done really well this year, uh, 6%. So in that kind of perspective, uh, when we see that kind of correlation with large caps, Caps. Does it tell you anything? Well, they uh, they took different paths to get there, so it's uh, it can be sometimes just largely coincidental that the numbers are so close. For example, if you broke down small cap into say growth small cap and value small cap, you'd have dramatically different numbers. Value small cap stocks have done over ten percent this year, and growth small cap have done closer to one percent. The uh, Russell 2000, which has a blend of all, is around the number you said. So uh, it looks like maybe it's similar to large cap. But uh, I mean, the charts are almost, you know, yeah. we've really seen the market kind of move, at least certainly this margin in the large cap universe kind of move in tandem this year. And there, and there, are, and there are some uh, elements that are going on that are a little bit unique to this time in history. The, the passive investment craze has become huge, and so you tend to get a lot of indexes and stocks moving in concert with each other. Mm. Uh, I think this is something that happens from time to time where you get these cycles, uh, especially now and we manage an active ETF, there are a lot of passive ETFs and those passive ETFs are buying the market. So whatever you buy one, you get everything. And so they right. tend to push them together. You know, I, wa I wanted to bring that up. Um, you know, there's been a sort of controversy behind ETFs and actively managed ETFs in particular, especially those that invest in less liquid assets. I mean, small caps aren't exactly illiquid, uh, but they, they can be a lot less traded than uh, bigger stocks. I mean, how much of a concern is liquidity for you? 
Well, uh, we build a portfolio of 240 stocks. So when a, an investor invests with us, it's spread out of a lot of stocks, and we take care of a lot of the liquidity issues that way. Also, we're taking out the bottom part of the liquidity uh, spectrum and saying those may be a little bit too illiquid. So we're playing in a little bit larger space in general. Uh, the companies we're buying are, are, are companies that have uh, solid fundamentals uh, and improving fundamentals. They also have free cash flow to cover their obligations. So that takes a lot of the risk out. If you just looked at a company's free cash flow and compared it to their interest payments due and their capital expenditures due, and you can cover that for a year, that's a pretty good gauge that uh, that these stocks are okay. I'm thinking about, you know, Lisa, when I'm on with Corey, I mean, Corey Johnson, that's one of his favorite metrics, I think, looking at free cash flow, may, essentially has means that they've got the money to cover the cost of their business, sure. and then some. Sure. If you're just trying to get exposure to this space, but you don't want to take all the risks there, one of the big risks is a lot of these companies, especially when it comes to accounting, uh, the earnings can be, um, you know, they can be moved around and right. they're the opinion of the management. But cash flow, it's hard to fool the cash flow numbers. Well, and, and one thing that that leads into is leverage. And we've heard a lot about how companies are borrowing as quickly as they possibly can so that uh, they can take advantage of these incredibly low borrowing costs. I mean, how much of a concern is that to you as you run your analyses of yeah. companies? Yeah, uh, it's uh, it's of some concern. Our portfolio generally has much lower leverage than the overall market. So uh, you know, companies that are highly leveraged uh, could be uh, could have a more difficult time. There's been a lot of bankruptcies, for example, in the energy space. But some of these companies can't cover their obligations. That's almost the definition of a bankruptcy: is you can't meet your near-term interest payments and debt payments. Uh, so the companies we're buying don't have that issue. They can cover their cash, cover with their cash flow the interest and in, 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 uh, principal payments on their debt. Hey, I got to ask you about two names that um, you were wanted to come in and talk about. Um, one is Grand Canyon Education ticker is LOPE. Stocks up about. 17% so far uh, this year. It's hitting a 52-week high today. Drew Industries is another, ticker is DW. That stuck's up 41% so far this year. I'm curious, when did you buy these? Or uh, I'm assuming you're not chasing a performance here. Well, we're not chasing performance. We've owned these these companies for some time now. What's some time? Uh, for several months. Uh, so uh, you know, Drew, you know, we can buy. We we're, we're happy. Well, the to fund b- is new too, right? Well, the ETF was launched in July, but let's uh, keep in mind we've been running this strategy for over four years. Okay. And we we ported in actually the track record into this active ETF, and we are the first uh, of that kind. Nobody has ever ported a separately managed account track record into an ETF before. So we feel like we're a bit, along with advisor shares, a bit of a trailblazer in that regard. What's your biggest contrarian bet right now? Our biggest contrarian bet is uh, we have we're low on financials right now, and I think maybe there's uh, some sentiment towards buying financials because they're so cheap. But uh, a lot of the, the financials that are in the small cap arena are regional banks. Some of those regional banks are struggling with the current interest rate environment. Do you think that we're going to see some kind of recession in the next year or so, or do you think that we're uh, going to kind of chug along for a wow, while? Wow, that's, yeah. uh, that's a that's a good question. Uh, we try not to forecast things like that because. Uh, but isn't that exactly. isn't that essential if you're going to be looking at so the smaller? Well, well, we buy companies that we we like. And, uh, you know, you can't forecast things like interest rates or elections or Brexits. Uh, but, uh, you know, right now the economy is, seems to be doing just okay. And uh, I think if the Federal Reserve is scheduling, and I think there's a 70% chance or 70% uh, kind of what's priced in is a 70% chance that they will raise rates the next go around, which means that uh, they feel like the economy is uh, strong enough that they can do that without, without damaging it too much. John Campbell, thank you so much for joining us. John Campbell, Chief Investment Officer of Cornerstone Investment Partners, covering earnings and the outlook for small cap stocks. Thank you so much for joining us.
Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg PL podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at iTunes, SoundCloud, or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Pim Fox. I'm out there on Twitter at Pim Fox. I'm out there on Twitter at Lisa Abramowitz1. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.